0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here at Pegaworld in Las Vegas, and I have the pleasure of being seated with, uh, with Vince Jeffs. Vince is the Senior Director of Product Strategy for AI and Decisioning. Vince, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, Let's get started by talking a little bit about your journey to AI. How did you get into this space? What's your background?
1: Yeah, um, I've got a certuicus background to coming to where I am, but it's been a fun journey. Um, I actually studied uh, applied statistics uh, at uh, Georgetown and the University of Maryland a long time ago. And uh, I think that's kind of what AI has become. Um, You know, we called it applied statistics back then. Now it's fancy term AI, but um, it's all good. Uh, From there, I worked on the client side with UPS, uh, working, uh, building decisioning and marketing technology systems. I worked with an agency, Rep Collins. Uh, I worked with SAS, the uh, business intelligence and analytics vendor, uh, and uh, did that for about four years. Uh, And then I joined a company called Unica, uh, and Unica was uh, started actually doing predictive modeling uh, with their first solution. And, uh, and then they got into the marketing technology space, and I spent 10 years with Unica before they were bought by IBM. So I spent a few, few years with IBM. Um, I, I like to say uh, sort of uh, kiddingly that I, my career took me from big brown to big blue. Um, <laughs> and, and then I ended up with Pega, uh, and I spent the last four years with Pega uh, in that uh, product strategy
0: role. And so did you know uh, John Hogan well? Oh, yes, absolutely. Knew we, John well. We yeah. worked together in a, a past life. Uh, oh, so awesome. Interesting. Yeah.
1: yeah, John's a great guy. He, uh, he headed up uh, engineering at Unica for years. Right, awesome,
0: awesome. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your role at Pega. What's your, what's your focus uh, at Pega Systems?
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun at this point in my career because I do get to think about sort of the strategic factors that a software vendor needs to consider as they build product. Uh, as they decide whether or not they need to, you know, maybe buy something uh, or partner. Uh, and that's really the kind of the, when I tell people there's three things I do, I worry about building, buying and partnering and the right mix of that and when to do that. So um, that's, uh, you know, a fairly broad set of uh, of items there. Um, but uh, I really do work closely with our product team. We have a product team in Amsterdam and a product team in, in Cambridge. Uh, And we think a lot about um, sort of facets of uh, the way we would prioritize what we would build into our product. Uh, We want to be market driven. We want to do things that are innovative. We want to balance that with what our customers need uh, and sort of what they demand to make the software successful. And then we also have sort of, you know, a lot of people call it technical debt. Um, that you have to always be sort of paying back and and you know fixing the underlying technology being able to do things faster and more efficiently so we try to balance those three things and we've come up with a way of doing that that's a big part of my job is working with uh, everyone that's involved in in that process and then also I do work very uh, very much with our partner team so you might have uh, you you're here at Pegaworld world with us um, we announced uh, this morning our launch of an ISV partner program so I I've had a big hand in that and some of the some of the partners that were mentioned that are going to be in that program, such as Movable Ink and Celebris uh, and Persado. I've worked very closely and helped bring those partners along and nurture them and their journey with us.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. And you gave a couple of presentations here at the conference yesterday. What were those on?
1: I did, I did. It was a uh, fast, fun, and furious day for me. I did a couple of presentations yesterday. Um, one was on a, a really cool thing that um, I'm very uh, passionate about, and that is driving new innovations into our product by having the sort of the idea of an innovation lab. It's not so much research. I like to think as research is more academic. It's more thinking about really applied ways that we can do cool new things in ways that we can actually affect customer journeys and customer experience with uh, AI and machine learning. So we did what we called four sneak peeks. Uh, where we wove that into a story about uh, a gal named Danielle who has a connected car, and we're trying to predict things that might go wrong with with her car. We're trying to help her experience by diagnosing things quicker. Uh, we're also trying to be more personalized when we communicate with her, uh, and then ultimately we're trying to manage any of the communications we're doing to make sure we're always doing something you know intelligent, relevant, and smart.
0: Okay, and what was the other presentation?
1: And the other presentation was a panel discussion. Uh, I was uh, very thrilled to uh, be able to host uh, three of our great customers, British Gas, uh, GM, and HSBC. So as I kidded when I opened it up, uh, we had gas, we had a car, and we had financing. So we had a nice mixture of use cases. So you could go somewhere. We could go somewhere with that. That's exactly right. And uh, and it was fun. They have great stories. Uh, and so I let them do most of the talking. Um, but uh, I think we ended up with a nice uh, blend of uh, where they are today with AI and their use of it in a practical way and where they're on their journey to uh, what we like to call, call omni-channel uh, experiences with customers and then where they're taking that kind of where, how they're expanding that out in their organizations to try to continue to drive more customer centric value.
0: Awesome. Maybe let's, uh, go back to that first presentation and talk through these four scenarios with, uh, an emphasis of course, on the, the AI and machine learning bits that are, uh, that you were showing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as I said, uh, we had four sneak peeks and the first one was really about Danielle having some car problems and, uh, Um, there's connected cars today, right? GM tells a great story and they were on my panel and telling that story. Travis Bradburn uh, tells that he's been 10 years working with Pega and uh, the connected car with GM. They really pioneered some of this. OnStar in particular. OnStar, exactly. So customers of GM that have the OnStar package are familiar with the whole connected car experience. And so we based that on um, that sort of use case a little bit, but where we were taking it was into the deep learning area. So,, um, you know, we've been very big about applying what we call practical AI. There's plenty of models today that are very uh, useful, um, you know, uh, supervised uh, machine learning models such as logistic regression and Bayesian and lots of things that we use today. But what we are really experimenting with is the ability for deep learning to listen to a lot of different data sources. And there's a lot of different data sources coming off both the connected car and Danielle herself using her mobile app and going on the website and engaging with with the brand. So we were learning sort of what might be going wrong with both Danielle's experiences uh, and and her car. and, and, And basically that was about using deep learning to trigger off a early warning that there may be something trending you know bad with their car before we have to actually wait which is the which is the typical car user's experience today right suddenly they get a check engine light and usually when they get that there's already something wrong with their car right sometimes it's something simple like maybe a gas cap's loose but more often than not, it's something where there's actually a part that's already failing. And so what we were trying to use is deep learning to preempt that, to actually l- listen to all those different sensors and be able to give an early warning and maybe get that car into the shop to have a look at it before something
0: actually breaks down. Mm. Can you take us inside the process of building out this demo in the lab? Did you uh, Where did the data come from, for example, and what were some of the specific data sources that you used?
1: Right, the data sources were pretty much the uh, device sensors that are on the connected car. So we were listening to things like, um, you know, braking, uh, gas mileage, uh, oil pressure, um, and then the any any um, sensors themselves, like uh, sensors that might be able to tell us that. The uh, oxygen levels in the in the system are you know trending in a bad direction. That could actually be an indication that some you know underlying part is about to fail in the near future. So as we're and remember this is a connected car, so we're getting this data constantly. Every time she, uh, they call it key turns. Every time there's a key turn, we're suddenly you know the the decision hub is being fed new data. So we're able to learn again, every time there's a key turn and she takes that car out on her commute, we're able to learn more about the performance of that vehicle. And what we were doing is we were using deep learning to actually look into the future and say, we predict that the performance, not necessarily there's going to be a breakdown. So it wasn't so much about actually a, you know, a bad breakdown, but it was more about gas mileage performance going down. So we want to be able to, you know, prevent her from just losing money on paying for unnecessary gas. And that's the alert that we gave her. We said, you know, nothing urgent. Your performance is degrading. If you come in, she was still under warranty. Um, We'll have a look at this. And then we, then that, that led to the second sneak peek.
0: You mentioned that the scenarios incorporated both data from the vehicle, as well as data from Danielle herself. Did any of this Danielle, uh, originated data come into play in this first scenario? It did not in the first sneak peek. Okay. It did uh, later on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we'll make sure to hit on that. So okay. this, you're leading us into the second sneak peek.
1: Right. Right. So, so what we had done is we had uh, provided her with, again, a friendly alert uh, when, you know, when it's convenient. And we could also automate the process of uh, helping her schedule an appointment and using some AI technologies. Those aren't real fancy AI technologies, but they're, again, they're good customer experiences to get her into a a dealership maybe that she's used in the past and she's comfortable with and at a time that's comfortable for her. So we can sort of, you know, we can uh, maybe not so much predict, but um, give her, you know, um, convenience uh, associated with her past behaviors. Then once we got her into the uh, shop, uh, really what we had, the second sneak peek was all about helping that technician through the diagnostic process. So we're using some rules, which Pega has uh, a great rules engine, along with some you know, models to help that technician get quicker to a solution. And so as the technician was already sort of given a next best set of service actions that they might look at, and they were inspecting the car and saying, well, no, you know, this is probably not the problem, even though you're saying it's a 60%, our model's saying it's a 60% propensity. um, As soon as the agent, gives the feedback to the model that that particular item wasn't the problem, then the model can recalculate and sort of hone in on what is the likely problem. So we had six or seven different things that were teed up as potential problems in this situation, and we were able to help that technician quickly narrow down to the problem probably faster than they would have just by, you know, somewhat trial and error, which happens in the shop sometimes.
0: It's interesting that the, you know, that example... You, we may it's it's where we are with machine learning and AI today. It's kind of easy to think of that as passe. Um, well, like what's the right way to come at this? Uh, what's interesting to me about that specific example that you give is while you know it doesn't strike us as kind of the way we think of machine learning and AI today. Um, AI in like the 70s and 80s was all about these expert systems right. that were trying to guide uh, maintenance people through processes to help them uh, move, you know, help them resolve issues more quickly. Uh, and so it's interesting that, you know, we're kind of combining kind of in this rule system you're describing traditional or older approaches or thinking around AI with, the, with more modern deep learning and other types of technologies.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's you've hit on what we feel is like you know sometimes innovation, and I I'll, I'll try to pull out a, a quote is rediscovering things from the past, uh, and then and then putting a new twist on them, right, or combining multiple innovations from the past, and I think expert systems still have you know a very good uh, role to serve in the right use cases it's just like when i'm sure you would agree with me with machine learning it's not about one algorithm it's not about this new deep learning which is you know really cool new ways to do neural networks which have been around for you know 20 years or more right But um, And there's some great advances there, don't get me wrong, but it's about picking the right algorithm for the right problems and then sometimes combining those together into a real solution for somebody like a technician or a car owner to benefit from the application of multiple sets of analytics together. So yes, there there wasn't one piece of analytics I could point to in that, that second sneak peek that's terribly new or innovative. But it is the combination of these things in practical ways of application that really do drive value for consumers and organizations. And so what was the third sneak peek then? So the third sneak peek is a little cooler. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so, so so that's good, because we don't want to get you know uh, on an AI uh, podcast and not have a few things that are cool to talk about. <laughs> so deep lear- learning is cool, and also this one is, which is, this one was about uh, what we really call dynamic email notifications. But we really believe this is going to any kind of dynamic treatments that customers might get. And when I say treatments, I mean, you know, whether you get something that is presented to you on a website, or whether you get it in your mobile app, or whether you get it in an email, I would think of all those as sort of consumer treatments. It's a, a brand c- having a conversation with you. And this sneak peek was about making that email much more dynamic. And when you think about it, email's kind of an older channel now, almost getting like direct mail, right? Where you think, eh, you know, that's a, a lot of people have, have, uh, you know, um, predicted the uh, death of email, like they did COBOL, right? But as we heard on stage at, uh, at, uh, at PEGA yesterday from, uh, Aflac, I think. There's still COBOL running. Uh, So so there's going to be email, I believe, for a while, and it's still a very viable channel. But what we're doing is making it dynamic so that it is essentially like a web page. And so really, a lot of people think about email as outbound treatment, outbound marketing. We really like to think of it now with this new sneak peek as inbound. And that might sound crazy, but what I mean by that is, When that email goes out, it's nothing more than a template. There's containers in it that will be pre-populated that aren't pre-populated, excuse me, with content. That's the way most emails are done today. Organizations have to back up weeks and get approval and decide exactly what's going to go into that email and then they send it out. And then maybe you don't open it for another two or three days because you're behind on your email, right? Or that's a personal email account. You don't check it that often. But maybe you go in there because you do a search for a brand you're interested in something and pop up that email. Now suddenly that content is three or four weeks stale. Um, That's not going to make for a great experience very often in the contextual world we live in. So what we did in this sneak peek is we showed how working with a natural language generation partner that we're now partnered with Persado, uh, and a dynamic email content provider, movable link and Pega, we could dynamically populate that email with content at open time. So at open time, when you open that email, now it calls back to Pega. It gets the next best content to put into that email. In this case, it was thanking Danielle for coming into the, you know, and get her car service quickly. Uh, and actually, um, encouraging her to sign up to a new loyalty program that we had, and even encouraging her with some you know points that were specific to her value. And then the language that was used in there, which is the Prasado piece, was generated um, for Danielle. So knowing what emotional language she responds to, and you can do that if you have enough interactions. You need a lot, you need maybe 75 interactions with Danielle. But if you do that and you test and learn, you can learn that she might respond to appreciative language or urgent language. And there's a set of emotions that Persado sort of keeps track of, and they tune the language and uh, to you know what resonates with her. And when you think about it, that's great. That's more like a brand having a conversation with a customer rather than having some one-size-fits-all treatment. So there's...
0: AI happening at the Prosado level w- around this uh, natural language generation and customization, uh, is there – a lot of what I've seen at uh, at the conference here and in the keynotes is around uh, optimizing the presentation of off- offers, kind of referring back to the the podcast I did with Rob Walker and the next best action and next best offer. Uh, is there – talk a little bit about the, the AI that's um, – you know, that is – Involved in that piece in this third sneak peek,
1: right? Right. So, when um, when Danielle opens that email, uh, Prasado has already sort of figured out probably a number of variations that that, that they're going to test with Danielle. They've maybe been again. If it, you you know walk with my scenario and, and assume that yes, we have interacted with Danielle before, we've had a number of chances to test and learn with that. With that language that we're going to use. So they've got some other variations, maybe call it 16 or 20 variations sitting out there that now they're continuing to test. So that loop is going on each time we have an interaction with Danielle. What we're doing is we're actually providing the um the, the actual piece of content that we want to, so the image that we want to put in there. Maybe we want to put a, you know, an image of Danielle in in her, you know, not her Danielle herself, but somebody. That you know Danielle might resonate with, and the type of car she has, and uh, and then we're also putting in very specific copy that we might be controlling, like the fact that she had just been in to the shop yesterday. We can actually tune that to the fact that we put that language in that says "Thanks for coming in yesterday," as opposed to you know just "Thanks for coming in." So just little things like that that might sound a little trivial, but they add up. What we've what we've been able to prove is that as that email becomes more and more relevant, and then we're populating in some very specific content, again, like, and please sign up for our new rewards program that we just launched, you know, two days ago. Again, we can be very specific about the context of that. We would love to reward you with a hundred value points for signing up and those value points again we can at real time recalculate and decide how many points we want to give to danielle based on a model we have about her lifetime value and her loyalty and this sort of thing so we can be discriminative about how much points we give her versus somebody else based on her loyalty and we can do that again at open time mm.
0: uh if we can maybe Digress from the sneak peeks for a second. Sure. And one question that uh, is jumping out at me, and it, this relates to a conversation I had with someone here at the event yesterday. I think you know we've established that consumers appreciate personalized experiences. We all know that, you know, we've all had the experience, the, the opposite of that, where you you call into a call center to get something done, you get bounced around four times and each time you have to tell them who you are and what the problem is, right? That's, you know, the antithesis of a personalized experience. And now what we're talking about are these hyper-personalized experiences where you're drawing on this vast, uh, you know, database of knowledge, you know, based on interactions. and. I guess the the observation is that you know sometimes it comes across as creepy, yeah, right. Even for me, I'm like very technology forward. I thought that's where you were going, right? <laughs> Very technology forward. Like I love the technology that's enabling all this, yeah. but you know I hear it and sometimes like, eh, and I'm wondering, yeah, I'm, I, you can talk about your general perspective on this, but I'm I'm wondering specifically. If you've done research into, you know, from the perspective of innovation labs or if you've, uh, you know, seen research elsewhere that tries to, you know, explore this personalization versus, you know, creepiness and, and, you know, the way consumers, you know, do we have data that says that consumers really want that beyond the fact that they do actually click more?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting area, and um, I'd say we don't have a lot of data on that, and it is a good area for us as an industry to really dig into more, especially with you know more of these you know regulations that are becoming uh, more prominent, right? With like uh, everybody knows about GDPR, which just launched May twenty fifth, um, but I think that's just a That's really a swell that's going on. It's not just in Europe. I think it's happening everywhere, quite frankly, where consumers are waking up a little bit to the fact that there's been a lot of data collected about them and it's being collected and they need to sort of seize a little bit control of that. Um, You know, let's face it, consumers um, are empowered, but they're also sometimes naive about what's going on in the background. But then once they become less naive about that, then they become more empowered. And I think brands want to, you know, by and large, most trusted, big name brands, uh, smart companies want to be responsible about that. Um, But they don't know where that line is exactly. Um, And they they need to be very careful about how they test that. They don't want to test that in actual practice if they don't know what they're doing. So that makes them a lot more conservative, and that's not always good. So what we believe is that they can test some of that using simulations and using other means to push the envelope a little bit um, in a lab, if you will, um, and then sort of slowly roll out and test that that line.
0: How do you test consumer attitudes and consumer reactions to, you know, a campaign and a a set of interactions via simulation?
1: Yeah, well, I think first of all, you need to do some of those tests with voice of the customer, you know, with panels and actually, you know, ask your customers, right? You don't have to ask all of them. You can use statistics to figure out, you know, approximately whether your customer base is happy or not with this kind of a thing that you're doing. Um, But then what you can do is you can use simulations to kind of like run the scenarios that might play out in terms of things like, say, opt out. It's not always a catastrophic event that happens when you cross the creepy line, but it can be a bad marketing event, right? Like if somebody opts out, Um, And now there's better ways to be a little bit more granular as a customer, as a company about how you set permissions and allow uh, consumers to set those permissions. And so they, you know, you can get smart about them being able to opt out of certain things, but then, you know, entice them still to want to engage with your brand in other areas, even if they're going to opt out of these, these channels or these communications. So I think you need to, you know, be smart about how you test that.
0: I think where you're going, which is kind of interesting, uh, and it it goes back to the the scenario, the the sneak peek of you know using the data that you have and kind of attitudinal um, learnings about a particular customer. Maybe there's a way to determine customers that will be creeped out, exactly, and then send them more generic, if you will, emails or less kind of edgy types of emails. I don't, don't, it's not clear to me like how you would learn it, but it's a really interesting area. And and I guess to your, to your other point, you know, maybe just ask, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe ask and sample and use, you know, some traditional methods of statistics to uh, extrapolate. Right. Um, but I think, you know, you're on to what, you know, we're kind of digging into a little bit, which is, you know, you really have to, uh, you know, you have to kind of blend that together, and um, and and then um, you know, be careful about how you roll it out, and 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 monitor it very closely, right? Monitor what's going on as you're testing, because you don't have to roll these things out in mass, right? You roll them out in very small increments when you put it into production, and then you watch what's happening. And you compare that with what you thought was going to happen in the simulations you did and and you adjust, right? That's one of the hallmarks we think of what Pega helps do is really helps customers be able to be more agile about once they do do things in production about being able to quickly rotate and change, you know, directions if they need to, or pull something back out if it's not working. Um, Commonwealth Bank of Australia in the keynote this morning talked about how they were able to do those things, you know, in 5 hours now to make changes as opposed to something that took 8 weeks to do. So that's I think a key, you know, part of it is hey, you know, when you're using AI and when you when you're affecting customer experience, it's going to be a test and learn process. You're not going to your lab is not going to have it completely right, right? But if you have the ability to at least make an educated guess going in and then and ask your customers, right? So we touched on that, and then you know, pivot fairly rapidly uh, when you see that it's not exactly going as we drew it up on the drawing board, that's key. And I think you can you know get smart then about how you treat those customers and which ones, like you said, which ones you're modeling, which ones you feel are, um, you know, going to be more sensitive versus not. And and then your models can learn and get smarter about that as you get more and more customers that you're learning, you know, you're getting more granular about the sensitivity, almost like Persado is getting more and more granular about the language that you respond to. You get more granular about your ability to decide whether Sam's going to be creeped out or Vince is going to be creeped out.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So popping back over to this uh, fourth sneak peek. Yep.
1: Yep. So the four sneak peek, the uh, the the story kind of uh, uh, culminated with uh, with Danielle um, being happy, being in a, back in a happy place. Right? She had her car fixed. She got this, uh, you know, offer to sign up for this loyalty program and get points. So she accepted that. Everything was looking great until the next morning. She gets in an accident. Okay. So we had to add a little drama to the to, to the scenario. <laughs> And that, and of course she has a connected car. So we have some, we have some in, in, intelligence about maybe how bad that accident was. Now we don't want to cross the creepy line, you know? Um, so we don't like reach out to her or anything, but what we do do is in, and, and and the scenario continued with her, then get, it wasn't a major accident. So the airbag didn't go off, but she got on re, right after that happened. She got on her mobile and she was looking on our service pages, right? Maybe she was looking up to see if, you know, some cosmetic damage, you know, sort of whatever, whatever she needed to kind of, uh, you know, uh, do a little investigation on. And that were, those were cues that we were picking up. So we're picking up the fact that, oh, suddenly Danielle's like looking at service pages and looking at these pages that have nothing to do with maybe buying a new car or, you know, how to use her mobile app. So we decided that, and we call it next best moment, that we had some marketing. We had a marketing treatment teed up to go out to her in two days after sneak peek number three had concluded. And that was going to be, we were going to make her this big, great offer on a new car because she had a older connected car. Well, we decided that the next best action and the next best moment for that was going to be, you know, that night because she checks emails that night and we had kind of learned that that's the time she's most likely to engage with emails. What we did is we actually took that communication out of the queue um, because we recognize that there's something going on. We don't know exactly what it is, uh, but we predict that she's probably gonna be calling us you know, for some more service. And so therefore it's not time to be marketing to her. So we actually paused that um, you know, maybe we'll resume it later on again when, you know, when the time's right, but the time wasn't right. So we pause that and we really manage that next touch point, um, proactively.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And so across the, uh, uh maybe talk a little bit about what, what goes into that from, uh, is there MLAI, uh, involved in that fourth scenario and, and how is it expressed?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, we like to categorize decision management and the arbitration of decisions as AI. We think it's fair actually. there's there's been um you know, other third parties like Forrester that have agreed with that that decision management is a form of AI. I guess those things can be argued by the AI purists, right uh, and and, you know, to some extent, I understand their arguments that, you know, let's say basic rules or even some of the basic robotics that's just pure automation, right? There isn't anything you know, terribly sophisticated algorithmically going on. Um, let's just, for the sake of this conversation, say that that's part of AI, decision management. So we can, um, we can decide the, uh, you know, the, the decisions that we're going to make either today when Danielle comes in channel on the mobile app and we decide what we want to actually present in a container there or on the website, but we also can look at the decisions that we've teed up. Right, that our marketing organization has teed up, and they're in a queue ready to go out, and and we can arbitrate all that. We can capture, you know, things. We can sort of, you know, capture and kill things if we need to, or capture and pause things. So that was really more about, again, not fancy AI technology, so to speak, but the orchestration of decisions across channels. Which again, what we've seen is that that had that just has tremendous benefits for organizations.
0: Yeah, and that's been a. a- core theme across the the keynotes that I've seen here. And, And one of the things that I've observed is that a lot of emphasis has been placed on the distinction between this traditional approach to marketing that is characterized by set segments that are determined say on the on the period of, you know, weeks, you know, versus a, a continually optimized marketing loop that's, you know, real-time putting together offers for uh, for customers. Uh, and, and, you know, this model extends beyond marketing, but marketing is an example that's been frequently used. Can you elaborate on that distinction and, and how you see that playing out?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really important distinction. And it actually is a you know, we, we sometimes call it like a 180-degree shift in, in the way you think about um, how you approach uh, understanding a customer and then taking action on that customer. So when you use the more traditional approach, as you called it, um, which, by the way, is, has you know, still has applications today in some cases where you just simply don't, don't have any customer data. Right? If you have to go out and do advertising and you really don't have customers that are aware of you, you might have to use segmented approach to reach those customers. But once you have some customer data, and that doesn't take very long as an organization, right? Once you onboard a customer and they've transacted with you a little bit, you've got a wealth of information about that individual customer. Why not use that in the moment for any conversation or treatment that you're going to have with that customer as opposed to putting them into buckets where they're going to be you know batch treated um, sometimes uh, in, in a way that lots of other customers will be treated and maybe a few of those it's very relevant to, but maybe a lot of them it doesn't resonate very well. So it really is a more always on transactional approach to say that what we're going to do is we're really going to let this engine wake up and get the data that it's got about this customer as of right now and make a decision of what to put into something and do that populate it in real time literally in hundreds of milliseconds doesn't matter if it's a web container doesn't matter if it's a mobile app that's calling to get some next best action doesn't matter if it's a you know call center rep that, that needs more information or wants something recalculated, but you do that in real time, as opposed to, as you said, sort of pre-calculating it sometimes weeks, uh, you know, ago, which things can lose their relevance very rapidly. Maybe that customer, you know, bought something that, that you're now, you know, you're, you're marketing to them, something they already, you know, purchased or, or they're now interested in something else. And you're not factoring that in to your
0: conversation. You need to sell this to Amazon because they do that all the time. They do. (laughs) (laughs) You were just shopping for shoes. Yes, I bought the shoes. Why are you still telling me about the shoes? And you know, that's
1: because (laughs) that's a, you probably know, that's an algorithm that, uh, you know, collaborative filtering and wisdom of the crowd algorithm. Again, it has its applications, especially when you've got tight product affinities. Mm -hmm. It can matter. You know, this tie goes with this shirt sort of thing. But then there's other... Times when that algorithm isn't working so well, right? And where you know something about that customer, you need to use that intelligence rather than just the fact that other people buy these things together.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so maybe to, to wrap up the session that you did with HSBC, it was GM, GM, and uh, British Gas, British Gas. Uh, what were the highlights of that session?
1: Yeah. the The highlights were um, really we spent about half the time. Uh, talking about how they got to where they are and the fact that they're not there yet, right? Um, they're getting great value, but it's it's a job in these big... These are all big companies, right? Huge companies. Uh, and so it's a long journey to uh, to get a big company to really change its mindset about how it approaches these things and and to do that across all the channels that they're interacting with. Uh, in, in case of GM, they started with OnStar. That's great. OnStar customers are getting a more dynamic and, you know, personalized and, you know, they're using more data to help improve the experience of the OnStar customer. But what about the, all the other GM customers that don't use OnStar, right? And so Travis talked about how they're starting to roll that out into more of their, you know, programs beyond just the OnStar program. British Gas, uh, uh, Joe Allen told a similar story about where they really did tackle a lot in their first couple of years of putting Peg in. They really felt like, you know, if you're a gas or electricity customer, you don't interact with those brands too often, right? <laughs> but when you do, it's really important, right? It might just be before your contract is up. or So there's these really important moments of truth where you've got to get things well synchronized. So she talked about how they, they couldn't start in just one channel. They really went in you know, and she calls it, we did inbound, outbound, and we ended up with unbound, um, which was, I, I love the tagline because the idea there is it's more channelless. It's really not about channels. It's about making decisions for the customer and, and, and being coordinated across omni-channels. Um, but then she talked about how they're taking that to paid media. Um, And, you know, outside of their own media, which is really interesting. And then she also talked about how they're using it now in their loyalty program and they're expanding the use of it in their loyalty program. So, um, and then HSBC also talked along similar lines. Fabian uh, was great about explaining how the bank is really interested in getting those experiences right when customers are doing things on the website. You know, when when they're using a mortgage loan calculator. That's incredible information, you know, if they stop using it suddenly. You know, there's opportunities to, again, reach out and try to help the customer. Maybe they were struggling with something. You know, m- maybe there's a- questions that you've got to answer for them. And so they, he told, you know, great examples of where brands need to continue to think about AI and the ability for it to drive, you know, self-service, but also how the human comes into the loop. In those it's really important that the agents be well equipped and they can get ai help to be better equipped to have great conversations with customers and be more you know be more convenient and more helpful with them right so we don't have those experiences that we started out with that you talked about with somebody bouncing around in ivr you know getting a rep that transfers you to another rep that asks you the same questions over and over and you're just about to pull your hair out Um, so it is really important to get the human well, you know, integrated into that loop with AI and, you know, um, Fabian told great examples of how they're doing that.
0: Fantastic. Vince, it's been great catching up on what you're up to. Anything you'd like to add to close us out?
1: No, it's been great to talk here with you, Sam. It's a, it's an exciting uh, topic. I love your program and, um, I'm passionate about it, as you can tell. Uh, I know you are too. So, thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely, thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Vince or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to slash talk 154 To follow along with the Pega World Series visit twimmelaicom slash pegaworlds2018. For more information on Pega systems or their new Pega Infinity offering, visit pega.com infinity. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.